Greetings, and welcome to Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. This is L.J. Ranke, and I'd like to invite you to enjoy with me this simple fact of life. North Dakota and these wide northern plains east of the Rockies and west of the Great Lakes really is and really are a good place to call home, a place with plenty of heart, a place where hope sometimes takes you by surprise. Today we're going to hear about a growing friendship for Ole and Lena. We'll also look at some statistics that bear on accusations about police racism made by the Black Lives Matter movement, which helped give birth to the NFL protest. But first we're going to look at a little bit of American history that opens up when you notice something about Williston that is different than any of the other major towns in North Dakota. When you compare Williston with other cities and towns in North Dakota and throughout the United States, you'll notice something that Williston does not have and has never had, a Carnegie Library. In North Dakota between 1901 and 1917, Carnegie Libraries were built in Bismarck, Devil's Lake, Grafton, Grand Forks, Fargo, Dickinson, Minot, and Valley City. Carnegie Libraries were also built at UND in Grand Forks, at NDSU in Fargo, and at Fargo College, a private school that was just south of downtown Fargo. Though it closed in 1922, the cornerstone for that Carnegie Library was laid in 1910 by none other than former President Teddy Roosevelt. If you cross North Dakota's borders, you'll find 17 Carnegie Libraries were built in Montana, 25 in South Dakota, and 65 in Minnesota. Going north, Manitoba had four Carnegie Libraries and Saskatchewan, two but no Carnegie Library in Williston. Our original library was the James Memorial Library. So what gives? Well, before I tell you about Mr. James, by whom Williston's James Memorial Library was funded, I'd like to tell you about Andrew Carnegie, the more famous library man, and possibly the inspiration for Mr. James and others like him. Andrew Carnegie was born in Dumfriesshire, Scotland in 1835. His family was hardworking but poor, so when Andrew was 12, the family borrowed money to emigrate to America, to Allegheny County, read Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andrew's rags-to-riches story came by way of a job he got as a telegraph delivery boy in Pittsburgh. That led to contracts throughout the city, then to a job as a telegraph operator, then to a railroad telegraph operator job, then to regional superintendent for the railroad, a position, by the way, which made him responsible for moving large numbers of Union troops in the Civil War, greatly benefiting the North's war efforts which led him to establish a company that built steel railroad bridges, which led him, aided by investments in the Pennsylvania oil fields, into steel manufacturing and steel mills with improved foundry techniques. When he sold his steel mills, he became the richest American up to that time. One man's kindness to Andrew when he was still young prompted Andrew to make a promise to himself which had a profound impact on American history. In Pittsburgh, a Colonel James Anderson, who had a personal library of 400 books, opened his library to what were known as the Working Boys, Laboring Youth, one of which was Andrew Carnegie. Each Saturday, Anderson allowed working boys to check out one book at no charge. Carnegie promised himself that if he ever got rich, he would give others what someone had given him, access to books and personal growth. Carnegie eventually became a prophet to the wealthy. He passionately believed that those who gained great wealth had a solemn duty to give that wealth away in ways that helped individuals raise themselves up. And Carnegie put his money, nearly all of it, where his mouth was. And that is why we have Carnegie Hall in New York City and Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and the beginning of teachers' pension funds and a myriad of other educational and civic and philanthropic institutions around the country and the world and libraries. The first library he donated was to his hometown in Scotland, then eventually to 660 towns in the United Kingdom. Canada got 125 libraries. Beginning in Pittsburgh, he donated funds for 1,689 libraries in the U.S., in every state except Alaska and Delaware. Towns seeking Carnegie funds had to secure their own land and provide a budget for staff and upkeep. So why a James Memorial Library in Williston? Well, meet Mr. James. Now this may surprise you as it surprised me. 
Mr. James, for whom the library was named, is the same man for whom Williston was named. Let me explain. Mr. James, like Andrew Carnegie, was in the Richest Men in America Club. He transformed his family's mercantile business into a copper mining empire. Because of that, he was a good friend and business associate of yet another wealthy American, James J. Hill, the railroad magnate in St. Paul, who built the Great Northern Railway and who, in 1887, named a railroad stop on the Missouri River after his friend, Mr. James, known as Willis or Daniel Willis James. For his friend Willis, Willis Stunn. I don't know if either D. Willis James or James J. Hill knew Carnegie personally, but they certainly knew of him, and they certainly knew of his call for wealthy people to give their money away. While no one matched Carnegie's level of giving, during his lifetime, D. Willis James built a beautiful public library in Madison, New Jersey, where he spent his summers. He also headed the Children's Aid Society in New York and donated significantly to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art and American Museum of Natural History. Those connections make it certain that Willis James would have known Theodore Roosevelt Sr., father of President Teddy Roosevelt. D. Willis James is remembered for commissioning and paying for a bronze drinking water fountain cast in Germany for Union Square in New York City, where it still stands today. The James Fountain is a beautiful sculpture of a mother holding an infant in one arm while helping a second child carry a jug of water. D. Willis James died in 1907. Perhaps that is why the people of Williston petitioned his estate for a library in the town named after him, instead of from the Carnegie Fund. Whatever the reason, it was the James Memorial Library, not the Carnegie Library, that opened its doors in Williston in 1911. When we come back, I want to tell you about Carl, whose grandmother Gertie, a friend of Ole and Lena, was a librarian at the James Memorial Library. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. After Carl had helped Ole plant potatoes on that Saturday morning, by Sunday afternoon he asked his grandmother Gertie if he could go help Mr. Larson again. Gertie called Lena Monday evening to pass on Carl's request. Lena said she'd check with Ole about any plans, but cautioned that they might not include a trip to Woolworths for ice cream sodas. Ole thought that it was a fine idea and began mulling over what project they could do together. After Lena's Thursday book club rolled around, he knew. As they'd arranged, Gertie brought Carl over Saturday morning on her way to work at the library. When Carl arrived, Lena asked him if he'd like to have some cinnamon toast. Carl had never had cinnamon toast before, so he said yes. He was amazed to discover that Lena had a shaker for it with both sugar and cinnamon together. He realized they must eat it quite a bit. Tasting cinnamon toast for the first time was a memory Carl knew he would never forget. He was almost speechless. Then the words began to flow. This is really good, Mrs. Larson. This is really, really good. Man, oh man, this is so good. Do you think this is good too, Mr. Larson? Ole chuckled. I've told my wife that eating cinnamon toast is like having a sunrise in my mouth. I love my cinnamon toast, Carl. When my dad comes home, said Carl, I want to bring him here for some cinnamon toast. That sounds like a wonderful idea, said Lena, and Grandma Gertie can come too. Lena was glad to hear Carl speak of his father. It had to be hard since everyone knew his dad was in prison. For the millionth time, she thought to herself, if only I could undo time. Aloud, she just said, I can't wait to see your dad again. Do you know when he'll be home? Grandma said, maybe by Thanksgiving, said Carl. He's going to love cinnamon toast. I'm sure he will, said Ole. And sometimes my wife cooks rice and we eat it in bowls with milk and cinnamon and sugar. And we had that for supper. About the only thing I like as much is fried cornmeal mush with butter and syrup. 
He loves his fried cornmeal mush, said Lena. She made a mental note. She needed to invite Gertie and Carl and Carl's dad over for breakfast and for supper. Carl just sat there amazed. Cinnamon toast on a Saturday morning with the Larsons. And the thought of sharing all of this with his dad was like, well, it felt kind of like Christmas. Ole finished the last of his cup of coffee. Well, Carl, our project today is to finish a bird feeder. Okay, said Carl. Is it for your backyard? No, said Ole. My wife has a friend who's had bats flying into her house. I think we got the bat problem solved, but her dog kind of liked the bats, so I thought maybe she and her dog would like seeing birds in their yard. So I started a bird feeder. I think we can finish it this morning. I'll bet if she puts cinnamon toast on it, she'll get lots of birds, said Carl. Maybe, said Ole. That just might be worth a try. A few minutes later, Ole and Carl were standing in the garage by Ole's workbench. It ran pretty much the width of the garage. Mounted to the wall above it was a pegboard with hundreds of holes running in straight rows, up and down and back and forth. Sticking out a lot of those holes were various types of hooks and holders, and on those hooks and in those holders were rows of screwdrivers and combination wrenches and crescent wrenches and hammers and saws and blades and belts and extension cords, plus some garden tools and spades. Sets of tools were hung orderly, smallest to biggest, left to right. Sitting on the workbench were some tool chests and some socket wrench sets. There was also a metal rack with dozens of little metal drawers that held different sizes of nails and screws and nuts and bolts and washers. Carl had a lot of questions. He learned the difference between a flathead screwdriver and a Phillips screwdriver. One tool in particular caught Carl's eye. It was maybe 18 inches long. It looked like a metal shaft that someone had somehow made the center portion go sideways. So instead of being straight from top to bottom, it had a large square-like U sticking out to its side. At the top was something like a wooden doorknob. The bottom had a steel drill bit, maybe three-quarters of an inch wide. What's that, Mr. Larson? Carl asked. That's a manual hand drill for wood, said Ole. Let me show you what it does. Ole grabbed a two-by-four piece of lumber from a stack of wood remnants on a shelf to the side of the garage and laid it on a small piece of plywood that had been leaning against the wall under the workbench. That will keep us from hitting the floor and ruining the bit, he said. Kneeling down, he put the bit into the two-by-four. He held the top wooden handle with one hand, applied some pressure, and with the other hand began to rotate in a circular motion the part of the tool that extended to the side. The bit started cutting into the wood. Oh, wow, exclaimed Carl. Ole finished the first hole. You want to try? Yes, said Carl. It took Carl a little bit, but he soon figured out that he could stabilize the two-by-four with one knee, and if he used his weight as pressure, he could hold the drill steady and drill into the wood. With each hole, Carl's progress improved. The feel of that spinning bit and the sight of those wood shavings slowly being spit out from the bit as the hole deepened and the slightly crunchy sound it made as it ground into the wood provided a surprising sense of satisfaction. Ole had previously cut the pieces for the birdhouse, so he really only needed to assemble and nail the pieces together. It was a simple open design, just a rectangular tray about 8 inches by 12 inches, trimmed with thinner pieces of wood to form a lip all the way around the tray. Two vertical pieces would mount to the short sides of the tray, then meet an angled, chalet-like wooden roof made of two pieces of wood that extended wider and longer than the tray below it. Screw hooks would be mounted in order to hang it, hopefully beyond the reach of any squirrels. Not likely, Ole mumbled to himself as he thought about those squirrels. Ole let Carl drill hole after hole while he assembled the feeder. After a few minutes, Ole asked, Carl, are you ever able to talk with your dad? Well, not exactly, said Carl. I write him every week, and he writes me every week. Sometimes kids tease me about him, but every week he sends me pictures. Ole set down the pieces of the birdhouse and turned to Carl. I'm sorry about the teasing. That hurts. Your father sends you pictures from Bismarck? He draws me pictures. 
Well, I'll be. That's really nice, said Ole. Would you like to see one, Mr. Larson? I sure would. Carl stood up. He reached into his back pocket and pulled out a folded white envelope. He unfolded it, then pulled out two pieces of folded notebook paper. He handed them to Ole. Ole unfolded the first piece of paper. Well, I'll be, he said. It was a pencil drawing of a bird. Ole was surprised at both its accuracy and its detail. The bird's eyes looked as if they were reflecting light. Wow, Carl, this is really good. When Ole opened the second piece of paper, he was so startled he flinched. It was the face of a woman that Ole knew. Carl, he said, this, this is your mother. Yes, said Carl. Ole then knelt down next to Carl. I don't know that I've ever told you, but I am so sorry for your mother's death. She was a wonderful, caring woman. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Mr. Larson. I'm sorry, too. I miss her. I can't imagine how hard it is, said Ole. Your dad's picture is beautiful. Her eyes, they almost sparkle. Your father's a very good artist, and he loved your mother very much, and he knew how much she loved you. This is beautiful, Carl. Next time you write him, please tell him I said so. I will, Mr. Larson. Thank you. And tell your dad that when he gets home, he's bringing you and your grandma to our house for cinnamon toast and fried cornmeal mush. And please bring all of the pictures he's drawn. Mrs. Larson will love that. I sure will, said Carl. I can't wait to eat fried cornmeal mush. All of a sudden, Ole tipped his head and made a quick shh gesture. He paused, listening intently for something. He sprang up for the side door of the garage, then toward the street. Carl was a little confused and ran out after him. Ole had run to the next door driveway and garage. An older model Chevy pickup was slowly pulling into the driveway. Carl didn't know much about cars or trucks, but he knew this pickup was noisier than most. That must have been what Mr. Larson had heard. Ole had run to the neighbor's garage and turned the silver handle in the center of the door. He slowly pulled on the handle so that the entire garage door in a single piece began to swing out from the bottom, then up, then into the garage. Ole stepped to the back wall of the garage, then off to the driver's side. He started yelling with both hands in the air. Okay, come on in. His hands gestured his words. Nice and slow, a little to your right. That's good. Nice and easy. Then finally, okay, stop, with an emphatic hand gesture. The engine stopped and the door opened. Ole moved a small step stool from near the wall to the floor beneath the open door. A very small lady slid out of the seat and slowly dropped her feet to the stool. Not only was she short, but when she stood, she couldn't stand fully erect. Her back was bent. Thank you, Ole, she said, but you don't have to bother. Ole introduced Carl to Mrs. Marguerite Stenberg and introduced Marguerite to Carl. When she heard Carl's name, she said, Oh, is Gertie Carlson your grandmother? Yes, ma'am, Carl replied. Again, Ole noted this young man's manners. Well, nice to meet you. Marguerite had a single bag of groceries, but politely refused Ole's offer to carry it into the house. Thank you, Ole, but as long as I can do it, I will. When she got inside, Ole closed the garage door and he and Carl walked back to Ole's garage. Mr. Larson, how did you know she needed help? asked Carl. Well, Carl, Mrs. Stenberg is getting up in years, but she still likes to do things for herself. She usually only drives on Saturdays, so I listen for her truck. It's the truck her husband drove. If I hear her, I try to open or close her garage door. She's hit the back wall of her garage a few times, and I've had to fix it. From his workbench, Ole picked up the still unattached bird feeder tray, then handed Carl a scratchy piece of paper. This is sandpaper, Carl. If you rub the wood with it, it makes the wood really smooth. The only thing that needs to be sanded are the lips around the feeding tray. Can you do this while I go in and speak to Mrs. Larson for a few minutes? Oh, yes, Mr. Larson. Okay, said Ole. I won't be gone long. Now let's not throw away your two-by-four, the board that now had about 30 holes drilled into it. 
It's got to be good for something. Let's both think about that. As Carl sat by himself, sanding the sides of the bird feeder tray, it dawned on him that rubbing the tray was kind of like rubbing a magic lamp. I could make a wish, he thought to himself. If I could make one wish, it would be for a hundred more days like today, and cinnamon toast with the Larsons, and with Dad, and with Mom, and cornmeal mush, and opening garage doors, and drilling holes in wood. He kept rubbing that feeder tray, and this time he thought out loud, those birds are going to love this bird feeder. And my guess is that Carl was absolutely right. We'll be back after the break. Today, I want to approach the NFL protest by way of a movement that has shaped the discussion of racism in America today. It relates very directly to the assertions made by Colin Kaepernick. I would submit that this movement in large measure prompted his protest. I'm also going to share some stats which suggest that accusations of racism may not always be legitimate and that such accusations may ignore other key issues. The movement of which I speak is the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, when I read the Black Lives Matter website, I find some things I can agree with. I agree with their goal to work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and by extension for all people, and to build and nurture a beloved community that is bonded together through a beautiful struggle, though I'm not sure what they mean by a beautiful struggle, that is restorative, not depleting. I also oppose what they describe as state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. But the devil, as they say, is in the details, and some of the details, both in their actions and in what they say about themselves, deserve to be evaluated. Two things jumped out at me on the Black Lives Matter or the BLM website. The first is their periodic and deliberate use of a term for their supporters, comrades. Ladies and gentlemen, one cannot hear that word without recalling its almost exclusive use in modern history by communism, a system of oppression and murder that deliberately used beautiful terms and phrases like justice and freedom from oppression to cover a level of brutality and injustice and oppression on a scale never before seen. Comrade was the code word for totalitarian regimes that have killed more people more ruthlessly than any other government or system in human history. Why would BLM use such a term? A second thing jumped out at me also from the BLM webpage. The site proclaimed that we are unapologetically black in our positioning. An unapologetically black position? Let's explore that assertion by doing a flip. What would you call a person who stood up and said, I am unapologetically white in my positioning? Who says, I can define issues and social agendas on the basis of skin color and assert my position as the position which all persons with my skin color share? You'd call that person a racist. To define issues by skin color is racist. Second, you would also call that person dishonest. No one person can say, this is the white position and I am the spokesperson for white positions. That's nonsense. Races are not monolithic single-celled entities where all persons who share the same skin color think or interpret issues the same way. One can be black and subscribe to left-wing policies or be black and subscribe to right-wing policies. Neither position can claim to be the black position. Making such a claim functions with racist categories and claims an authority for one's position and oneself that isn't honest. The real rub, however, is buried in the BLM's understanding of the phrase state-sanctioned violence. That, I believe, is a code word for accusing police interaction with blacks as being innately racist. 
I know that racism exists among police officers, and that needs to be said. But to relentlessly accuse the police of racism avoids a huge problem that directly involves the police, black-on-black crime. A few weeks ago, I commented on Colin Kaepernick's tweet that essentially dismissed July 4, 1776 because slavery existed in the U.S. at that time, while rejoicing that he found his independence by visiting what he called his home, his ancestral homeland, Ghana. But the elephant in Colin's room is the fact that on July 4, 1776, black-on-black slavery was vibrant and alive in Ghana and had existed there far longer than slavery existed in the United States. Colin ignored the facts of history to place blame on America's doorstep, ignoring crushing volumes of black-on-black slave trading and black-on-black slavery. Accusations of racism, like accusations of slavery, need a reality check. Facts. While racism by police needs to be addressed, the heavy involvement of police with blacks is not the primary issue. Their involvement is prompted by the epidemic of black-on-black crime. Black-on-black crime is decimating black neighborhoods, and it is not prompted by the police. Consider the following. 1. Blacks make up 13% of the American population. 2. More than 50% of all the murders in the U.S. are committed by blacks. More than 50% of all the people murdered in the U.S. are black. 3. 92% of all blacks that are murdered are killed by another black. 4. While most murders are the same race as those they murder, the rate of black homicide means that a black person is 11 times more likely to be involved in committing a homicide than a white person. 5. The issue of black-on-black crime isn't just about murder. In the 75 largest counties in the U.S. in 2009, 15% of the population was black. In those counties, that 15% accounted for 62% of all robbery defendants, 57% of all murder defendants, and 45% of all assault defendants. 6. Those rates of violent crime in minority urban areas mean that police responding to calls in minority neighborhoods are far more likely to encounter a violent crime with a gun than in other neighborhoods. 7. The violent crime rate in minority areas means that police are far more likely to draw their gun in minority neighborhoods than elsewhere. That isn't because they are racist. It's because they are responding to violent crime. 8. Studies consistently show that minority police officers are more likely than white officers to pull their weapon and discharge it with a black civilian. 9. Over the last decade, 40% of the police officers killed in the line of duty were killed by a black assailant. 10. In 2015, 987 people were killed by police in the United States. Half were white. 26%, just over a quarter, were black. While that is a higher percentage of deaths than the 13% of the total population comprised by blacks, when you factor in the rate of violent crime involving blacks, statistics would predict a higher percentage of blacks being killed by police. 11. There is this horrifying reality. Besides domestic, gang-related, and crime-related black homicides, the number of black children killed accidentally in drive-by shootings, in random shootings, and black gang retaliation shootings is staggering. So far this year in St. Louis alone, 18 black children, 18 black children under the age of 16 were killed accidentally in such shootings. That black-on-black violence is not prompted by the police, but the police who respond to that violence are often cited as the enemy of the black community. Black children are being killed and our world looks the other way. Our refusal to acknowledge such black-on-black violence is its own form of dismissal, even, I would say, its own form of racism. 
Police brutality and police racism does occur. Such behavior is wrong and must be fought. But let us also say clearly that while a police officer killing a civilian is tragic, if that officer is white and the civilian is black, it is not necessarily evidence of racism. In the same way that a black officer killing a white civilian is not necessarily evidence of racism. And this must also clearly be said. Police killings are not decimating the black community. Black-on-black crime is. It is a monstrous shadow that looms over black neighborhoods. But just as our pictures of historic slavery usually know nothing about black-on-black slavery or black-on-black slave trafficking, the level of today's black-on-black violence is largely unrecognized, but it's real. And consider the impact of the Black Lives Matter, the issue is police brutality campaign. Did you know that for decades, crime rates in the United States have been dropping? Yes, dropping. As a snapshot, let's look to New York City. In 1990, New York had 2,245 homicides. That's six murders a day, plus an extra murder each weekend. 43 murders a week. But in 2014, New York had 333 homicides. That's equal to one murder a day for 11 months and a month with no murders. That decline was the pattern in cities across the U.S. If crime rates in New York had stayed at 1990 levels, more than 10,000 minority New Yorkers alive today would be dead. And why the drop in crime rates? Because police developed intervention tactics, going to high crime areas, and that means minority neighborhoods, to have a presence at criminal hotspots so as to interrupt criminal behavior. Preemptive police action impacted the crime rate. But today, if police take early action in minority neighborhoods, do you know what that's called? Racist. So the police pull back. And the result? The downward spiral of violent crime and homicide rates in urban areas has now reversed. In 2015, after the Ferguson, Missouri blow-up, police scaled back minority intervention and murders rose nearly 17% in the 50 largest cities in the U.S. The greatest increases were in cities with the highest percentages of blacks, which means more blacks killing and more blacks being killed, and all in the name of fighting racism. Our system of intervention and incarceration, if and where it unjustly relates to blacks, needs serious overhaul. I am on that bandwagon. But the black-on-black crime rate needs to get on our speed dial, and it should prompt us to ask some hard questions. Why the loss of respect for others, for self, and for life in the black community? That's not caused by police, though police have to respond to it. Might it relate to the collapse of the black family unit? The fact that 70% of black children today are born out of wedlock? Easy to grab accusations like white racism or racist police or even white privilege result in shallow answers. We need to give ourselves permission to ask difficult questions and risk finding hard, complex answers. It's fair to ask. It's important to ask. Have government-sponsored solutions over the long term helped fuel the collapse of the black family and thereby the rise in black-on-black violence? And we need to ask these questions together, black and white, as neighbors, humbly serving each other and the truth. We owe that to ourselves and to each other. We can do this, people, and we need to do it together, not on the basis of what makes us different. I'm black and you're white, but on the basis of what we share. I'm a human being and so are you. I'm an American and so are you. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for more Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. Goodbye and God bless.